0: Luke chapter 11, commencing at verse 1. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me, the the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed.
1: Well, good evening. It's great to be with you again and to continue our series on a portrait of a disciple. And particularly tonight, we're thinking about the prayer of a disciple. During the week, I thought I'd do a quick survey. And uh, I put up on various uh, social media posts. Uh, I spoke to people personally as well. And I said, why is it hard for us to pray? Could you uh, you choose uh, one of those options? And they were the options I gave. If you haven't already responded to me on the survey, you might like to think in your head which Is it for me? Why do I find it hard to pray? Here's the results of my survey. Number one reason why people find it hard to pray is they feel, I just don't want to. I don't feel that I need to pray. Uh, Number two was I find it very hard to make time to pray. Uh, There was a tie for third, seems too hard, or spiritual attack. There were some others that were less popular. But zero votes went for, I don't know how to pray. Interesting, isn't it? I concluded that in real world day-to-day life, prayer is desirable but mostly unattainable. I should say that there was one, just one person who said, what, prayer is hard? Hmm. Many of us would like to pray or pray more or pray better, but it doesn't seem to happen. We all know how but somehow we don't seem to be able to give it the time and the attention that it requires, and so we give up. And yet, when we see the real thing, it is profoundly attractive. Certainly, that's what Jesus' disciples found. At the beginning of Luke 11, that's our passage for today. If you haven't already got your Bible open, make sure it is open at Luke 11. Uh, Jesus is praying. His disciples see him, perhaps they even overhear him praying, and they come to him and they say, Jesus, will you teach us to pray? Not any kind of praying, but teach us to pray your way. John the Baptist, he obviously taught his disciples how to pray. Teach us your way of praying Jesus. The disciples want what Jesus has got because it's so attractive. And that's really what this passage is about. Uh, Jesus has stimulated his disciples' desire to pray, and now he's going to teach them. So the passage, verse 1, begins with, teach us to pray, and then we get the teaching. Okay, here's what to pray, verses 2 through 4. Then Jesus comes up with a parable. I'm going to call it the parable of the annoying friend. That's in verses 5 through 8. And then there, there is an exhortation, seek, ask, and knock. That's what you need to do. And then finally, Jesus gives us, I think, another illustration which really drives home his main point. So as we journey through Jesus' answer to this request, teach us to pray, I think we're going to find some help. Help for our struggles and not just with a bit of a nudge in the right direction. But I actually think what we have here is the foundation of prayer for a disciple. This is what really matters in prayer. This is prayer that works, prayer that actually will bring joy to us. But and here's here's the disclaimer, there's always a disclaimer up front. Here's the disclaimer. This passage will not give you thirty spare extra minutes every day when you've got nothing to do except for praying. Okay. It's going to cost us if we want to pray. More about that later. For now, we want to be reshaped by God's character and by God's person so that prayer becomes our priority, so that it's something that we want to make space for, something that we choose to do, something that we love to do. And so as we dive into the passage now more directly in Luke 11, Jesus says, If you want to learn how to pray, well, here's what you need to say. And then he launches into what we all know as the Lord's Prayer. I wonder why we don't call it the Disciples' Prayer, but nonetheless, we know the prayer. And it's the form of the prayer in itself that we sometimes skip. It's an interesting response that Jesus gives. Verse 2, Jesus answers collectively. He says, When you pray... That's the Greek use, right? so all of you, the whole group. When you pray, pray this way. In other words, disciples, there is a communal aspect to prayer. Pray together when you pray this prayer. Of course, there are other times when Jesus encourages us to pray privately. He says, go to your room and close the door and pray, Matthew 6. But here, Jesus' address is altogether, plurally pray. Because our relationship with God has an essential communal aspect to it. The idea of a lone stranger Christian who trades church for you know, podcasts with earphones, that's a long way from Jesus' teaching here. Now, who knows, there may be a health reason why we can't all gather together, but for now, it's the best thing. So the form of Jesus' answer challenges our contemporary church culture, not just in that it's all about community, but secondly, it's a set form of words. It's a liturgical prayer that could be easily memorised and repeated often. Interesting, isn't it? It's not made up on the spot, it's not impulsive, it's not spontaneous, and yet it's no less inspired by the Holy Spirit So this prayer that Jesus gives us flies in the face of our contemporary culture. We love spontaneous individualism. But this is a communal, liturgical prayer. So how should Jesus' disciples pray? Father, hallowed be your name. Now we're pretty familiar with the prayer, I'm guessing, for many of us anyway. The problem with familiarity is that you might miss the obviously important. Okay? And in fact, the most striking part, I think, of this prayer, and I think perhaps uniquely the most Christian part of this prayer, is that we address God as Father. We dare call God Father. It's audacious. And it's very striking, particularly in the Jewish religious culture of Jesus' day. There were lots of other liturgical prayers in Jesus' day, and they were actually a little bit similar to this prayer. So the Kaddish, which was a prayer that ended the ancient uh, synagogue service, sounds like this, exalted and hallowed be his great name. In the world which he created according to his will, may he let his kingdom rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the whole house of Israel especially, and so on. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So there's quite a few of the ideas in Jesus' prayer that already exist in first century Judaism. But what is striking is this address to God as Father, particularly in the sense that Jesus means it. In fact, God as our Father seems to be the key point of Jesus' teaching in response to the question. Okay, if we were reading all of Luke's gospel uh, through from start to finish, we would have seen this is a theme that's been developing. God is our Father. In the previous chapter, chapter 10, uh, which is the same kind of teaching block of Jesus with his disciples, Jesus says this, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. So Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is the Son in relation to God, his Father, and that relationship is unique. Only the Son knows who the Father is, and vice versa. And here's the wonderful thing. But Jesus will extend this same relationship with his Father to those whom he chooses. He is, uh, he is not only Jesus' Father, Jesus says. He says, I want you also to address God as Father. He is our Father, You might notice that this version of the prayer doesn't actually begin, Our Father in Heaven. That's the version from Matthew's Gospel. It's a little bit longer. It's got some extra glosses added into it, but you can see the comparison there. Pretty much the same prayer. Matthew's version of Our Father in Heaven qualifies just the plain Father in a way that kind of feels a bit better. It's a little... Safer, I think. Yes, God is Father, but he's our heavenly Father. He's, he's different. He's high and exalted and far above us, which is absolutely true. He is. And yet, in Luke's version, we are taught simply to address God as Father. And it's actually a little bit more disturbing than that. Because the underlying word Abba could well be translated "Daddy." you know this is the sort of thing that you know a little child on their dad's lap would look up and say daddy i love you and so it is the fatherhood of god that opens and underpins jesus lesson on prayer god is father dad dada that's not all If you look down to verse 13, you'll see that in Jesus' final illustration of prayer, it's God that acts as a good father in response to our prayers. So that's really where this passage is going, beginning and end, top and tail. We should immerse ourselves in the fatherhood of God such that our prayers are inspired, they are encouraged, they are shaped by his person and his character. We have a heavenly father, dad. Who eagerly awaits our prayers. His true son teaches his disciples address him alongside me as Dad. Now, from our contemporary perspective, and maybe with a couple of thousand years of theology behind us, we might also marvel at being invited by Jesus to enter into the Trinitarian dynamic. That is, When God speaks to God, when Jesus addresses his Father, He's actually inviting us into the centre of that same reality. When you pray, Father, hallowed be your name, could there be a greater conversation for you to be a part of than that? Now I know that there's lots of people, and perhaps I do too, dream of being friends with the famous of being invited into secluded conversations with the powerful and the influential and the popular. You know, um, oh yes, I was chatting with the Queen the other day and I warned her about Donald and oh, Boris. And what really happened between Scott and Jacinta the other day? You can imagine how it goes, right? That's not it. Would you speak many more important words in your life than those that you speak To the Father, enabled by the Holy Spirit, with the Son at your side and mediating for you, this Trinitarian reality lives at the heart of prayer. Even though Luke, it's just kind of tucked here in the side with this simple address, Father. This is the ultimate access pass. Even in this company. Our address to God as Father implies a loving, trusting relationship, one who is ultimately committed to our good and to our best. He is our protector. He is our lover with authority and power and yet with this intimacy. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Somehow, as the eternal Son of the Godhead addresses the Father and invites us to join in, we are in the centre of the life of God. Only a Christian would dare address God in this way. But this Father's name, as I say, is to be hallowed. Hallowed's a not very common word, is it? We can get into trouble with it, I think. little boy got into trouble with it. His mum said, why do you keep calling God Harold? And God's name's not Harold. Yes, it is, he replied. You taught me. Our Father in heaven, Harold be thy name. It's a bad joke. It's an old joke. I've told it so that you remember the next bit, okay? The next bit is this. Hallowed means holy. Set apart perfect in purity. To refer to God's name is to refer to his character, his reputation, to his person. God is synonymous with his name. And when we pray that his name might be held up as holy, we join in with a heavenly affirmation of myriads of angels who constantly sing, holy, holy, holy. One holy is not enough. They sing over and again, God, you are holy, perfectly awesome, mighty, burning in purity and glory. God is majestic, beyond comparison. And just praying this prayer of Jesus implies that we are intimate with the Holy One. It's kind of alarming. I find it alarming, and yet it's true. We are made safe only by Jesus' invitation and his intercession for us as we enter into this incredible mystery. He is the Father whose kingdom is coming, the day we long to see when his rule is complete in the new creation. It's on its way and we're praying for it. So much more to say about this prayer. So much more to say. But for now, I just want to focus on one more thing from this prayer. The other thing that I think actually has a very, again, uniquely Christian aspect, and it's our need to ask for daily bread. Actually, it took scholars a very long time to figure out the exact meaning of that word that we translate daily, because it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. It doesn't appear anywhere else in classical literature. On the face of it, it just sort of seems to say, tomorrow... But respected scholars for for generations and for, in fact, millennia thought, maybe this is a very, very spiritual kind of prayer that we are praying for. Maybe it refers to the bread of Holy Communion. Maybe it refers to the manner in the wilderness that God would feed us heavenly bread. But there was no textual support for any of those ones. About 150 years ago, some archaeologists started digging around in the garbage dumps of Egypt in the small towns, and they started to find these papyri, little pieces of paper. If you want to know how the rich and powerful are living, you look in their palaces and you look at their artworks and their inscriptions on their sculptures and so forth. But if you want to know what the common man and woman are doing, you go to the garbage dump because there you find their remains and so forth. Well, there it is in the garbage dump, scraps of Egyptian papyri with this word daily all over it. Contained in shopping lists, in receipts from the marketplace, memos, informal letters, and there the word turns up. Go shopping and don't forget the daily bread. Give us bread that's going to be good tomorrow. We don't want any of that stale stuff that was baked yesterday. We want the daily bread, that is the fresh bread. Go to the baker and get the good stuff fresh. So when we pray, For our daily bread, we're asking God to meet our immediate needs with his fresh provision. We're praying for pretty ordinary stuff, for bread. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too common to pray for. We ask God for it all. Why? Because we are utterly dependent upon him for everything. He is our provider. So here's where the Lord's Prayer actually challenges us to pray regularly. We are absolutely reliant upon God for everything, for life and for health and for everything else. Just as we would bypass the old mouldy bread, keep our prayers fresh with God daily, asking for all that we need, big and small, from our great provider. So we are also to pray regularly. But Jesus calls us then to pray boldly, even audaciously. That's what that parable of the annoying friend is about. Have a look with me at verses 5 through 8, the parable of the annoying friend. And during the week, I was tempted to try this out. What I thought I'd do is I'd go around to Mal's place at midnight and uh, I would start banging on his door and say, Mal, Mal, wake up, give me three loaves of bread. Quick, come on. And I would make such a ruckus and such a stir and I would wait till Mal eventually opened the door and then I would take a photograph of his face just to see what he looked like at midnight when someone's been banging on his door. Could have been a lot of fun, don't you think? But I didn't. I didn't think it would be fair to put Heather through that. I didn't think it would be fair to put Mal's family through all of that. Probably I didn't think it was fair to put Mal through all of that. And that's precisely Jesus' point. Not even your really annoying friend is going to do that to you. But God invites us to pray with exactly the same shameless audacity. Ask God for whatever you want, for anything, and ask boldly because he is gracious. The parable says... God is gracious to answer our prayers no matter how annoying they might be. His compassion is extended to us. And so Jesus finishes with the exhortation in verse 9. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So we pray boldly and we pray with great confidence. But wait, what if God does enter into our audacious prayers and he says, I know, I'll answer them with exactly what they want to our harm. We thought that asking God for a great big gun would be a good idea and then we accidentally shot ourselves in the foot with it. Um, It's given uh, expression in a song which goes, be careful what you pray for because you just might get it. I want you to know that that is not a biblical idea at all. Quite the contrary. Have a look at verses 11 and 12. Jesus says, Which of you fathers, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? Even human fathers, in all their pathetic weakness, they don't do that. Remember, God is our Father, and He loves us. He would never spitefully answer our prayers in order to harm us. Instead, He's good, and we trust His goodness when we pray. We can pray with confidence because He will not answer our prayers in a way that will not be good for us. You actually learn something here, don't you, about how God answers prayer, right? God answers prayer only for our good, in our, with our finite minds and with our partial knowledge, we don't know what God knows. But in his mercy and in his omniscience, God answers our prayers only as is best for us, for our good. And even better than that, when you get to verse 13, in comparison to small things like eggs and, uh, and fish, God will answer our prayers with the very best possible answer, the very greatest gift of all, which is Himself, His presence, His person, the Holy Spirit. God generously gives us all good gifts. So there's some pretty powerful reasons to pray, they are the bedrock of prayer for every disciple. Jesus has invited us to address God as father, his dad, and yet his name is holy, holy, holy. We're invited to ask God for whatever, whenever, even with shameless audacity. And because God is good and he loves us, we know that he will answer our prayers in the way that is best for us. I think that is the foundation of prayer for a disciple that will propel us into prayer. And so how are we going to find the time in the midst of our busy schedules? Ultimately, I think it's going to come down to our priorities and our habits. If we want to pray, it's going to cost us something and there is no getting around that. As much as we love to multitask, if, if all our prayer time is while we're doing something else, I think we're shortchanging God and I think we're shortchanging ourselves. There are always going to be times when you can shoot up a quick prayer in the middle of the day. There's a crisis or there's a situation. Great, do that. That's a really good thing to do. But surely there are also times when we give God our undivided attention. If making time is your problem... And I know what that's about. The only way to prioritise prayer is going to be to cut something out. So here's a little exercise you might like to try. Have a look at your schedule, make a list and go through it all and decide what's the things in my schedule here that are the lowest priority. And get a big red texture and scratch a line through them. You're going to axe those so that you have time to pray. Now... Maybe it's a bit of Netflix, maybe it's the gym session, maybe it's the sneaky cream bun and coffee late afternoon, or maybe it's the game of Flappy Birds or Minecraft or whatever the latest thing is. None of those things are wrong. It's just your choice about the value that you will place on prayer. You get to decide about the eternal value of talking to your dad instead of whatever else that you've taken off your list Now, as the name suggests, being a disciple of Jesus involves some discipline. Henri Nguyen writes, In the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Discipline means that somewhere you're not occupied, and certainly not preoccupied. In the spiritual life, discipline means to create that space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. We are immersed in a culture and even a church culture where we see discipline is the vehicle for getting more stuff done. If I'm really disciplined, I can do more. Nuon suggests quite the opposite. He says that such busyness and the hunger to fit in more and more and more might actually be the evidence of a lack of Discipline. You might need to set aside our fear of missing out and learn the discipline of decluttering our lives so that we have space and time to talk with Dad, our great God. So it's about priorities, but the key is our habits. Most days we don't get up in the morning and think afresh, now what will I do today? How will I get to work or whatever it's going to be? We don't think about those things. We just do the same things that we always do. We get done in life the sum of all of our little habits. That's what we do in life. We get up in the morning, we make a cup of tea, we have a shower, we go to work. But if you want to build a habit of prayer, a good and valuable habit, well, you get up, you make a cup of tea and you pray and have a shower and get your gear on and go to work. Or whatever. That's just my habit, okay? You do whatever works for you. Make it up. It'll be creative fun, okay? Do you remember the beginning of this passage? Jesus is seen by his disciples and he is praying. I suspect that they heard him praying as well. And they say to him, will you teach us to pray? Just a quick thought for you. An observation of prayer tells us that prayer is caught first before it's taught. Prayer is caught before it's taught. If you want to grow a family of prayers, then pray with them. Pray with your kids. Pray with your grandkids, whatever it is. But, you know, after they've cleaned their teeth, before they get into bed, we pray. That's just what we do. If you wish that your friends loved prayer more, why don't you pray with them more? Make it your thing. When Jesus taught his disciples, he directed their attention away from themselves to the character and to the person of God. When we struggle to pray, let's focus on the character and on the person of God. So, Stu, few questions coming in. One reason I struggle to pray is because I feel like my prayers are never answered the way I want and hope. How would you encourage me? Um, You're not alone, um, whoever you might be. That could be anyone. Our prayers don't always get answered the way that we would like or the way that we thought would be best. And therein lies the realisation. You see, in our finite understanding, in our limited view of this world, I'm a tiny little speck in the world. God who sees all things, who knows all things, and who loves me passionately and powerfully, He is a good father, and he answers my prayers as his best. Now, I don't always see it the way he sees it. His perspective is far greater than mine. I've prayed for many good people who actually didn't get better. And I wonder, why not? Well, God knows the answer to that question. His mind sees eternity. I have this strange assumption that everything here is good and that more here is better now. But God doesn't have that perspective only. He sees things much more than I do. So... Um, When we struggle with unanswered prayer or prayers that get answered in different ways, where we go to is the goodness of God. When we ask for a fish, he doesn't give us a snake. When we ask for something small like a fish or an egg, he gives us as well something amazing in the person of his Holy Spirit. God's goodness and greatness to answer our prayers is more than we'll understand now. I suspect that sometime in the future we may get it and go, "Aha! So much more—so much more than I ever imagined." So that's that's my response to to us all when we we all do struggle with that perspective on prayer.
0: Thanks, June. Uh,
1: the next one question is: Are there faithless prayers? Are there faithless prayers? Are there faithless prayers? Probably not. Um, they're the ones that kind of. You know, prayer requires faith. Um, If I didn't think that God was there listening to me as I prayed, uh, that would be a faithless prayer. And so it sort of seems a, a nonsensical thing. I think faith is the prerequisite to prayer. Now, how much faith do I need? Just a little mustard seed. Just the tiniest little hunch. The tiniest smallest little bit of faith is enough to propel that prayer straight to God. And he will hear it and he will answer it.
0: Awesome. Uh, This will be the last one. Uh, As a younger Christian, I was taught, or in brackets, warned, not to engage in shopping list prayers. The Lord's Prayer seems to be a bit like that. Was I misled?
1: It is interesting, isn't it, that sometimes um, the Lord's Prayer can be kind of on rote repeat cycle and we just rattle it off without thinking about it. And it just seems like, you know, a good luck charm to actually just rehearse the prayer through. If you struggle with that, and I have struggled with that from time to time, here's the tip. Slow down. Slow down in the Lord's Prayer. And think on, I mean, we just covered really the first phrase or two today, didn't we? Think a little more carefully about all that is in that prayer. So slow down when you get to the Lord's Prayer from time to time, it'll enrich it for you, that'll stop it feeling like a shopping list as you pray the Lord's Prayer, particularly as we pray it together here at church where we don't slow down so much. Is having a shopping list a bad thing in prayer? Personally, I don't think so. In fact, if you look at scripture, you might see that there are many times when there are many things that a great one in the Bible is praying for or they are praying persistently about. Nothing wrong with a shopping list. God is good and he longs to answer our prayers. Asking God for anything is an expression of faith. If asking God for a whole bunch of things, well, that must be an expression of bigger faith, mustn't it? I've got more to trust you with, God. So I don't feel that uh, a shopping list is a bad thing in prayer. Um, I would say... Don't let your prayers entirely be focused on your own needs. Do you notice how the Lord's Prayer takes us first to the person of God? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done before we get to my needs. So that might be a good way to go with it. Balance up your shopping list with some stuff about God.